The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look at academia's war on Christianity. Have you ever wondered why the world is so very much against Christian religion these days, or Christianity these days? Well, I'll tell you what, it has a lot to do with what goes on within our school systems, our education system that was adopted, and it starts with academia at the top of the education structure with your colleges and universities where they receive their training, where they get their ideas and their ideals from, and a prime figure that always turns up in academic circles in discussion is one Mr. Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, if you're not familiar with Nietzsche, he was an erstwhile philosopher. He was also a member in good standing of the mystery schools of the secret fraternities. He was photographed on many occasions displaying some prominent symbolism related to the secret schools, one of which is he had his hand tucked in his coat, thus designating his membership of the Hidden Hand, the Invisible College. That's what they like to call it sometimes. These people who belong to these secret occult fraternities. Nietzsche was no different, and some of the things he put forward have influenced many minds in academic circles, even unto this day. And still to this day, they hold a lot of sway in our culture. Now, Nietzsche was one of the ones who popularized the notion that God is dead. We've heard this notion before, and I've discussed it here ad nauseum on previous programs here. And I've also written about it in my books. This whole notion, this idea brought forward by the secret schools and how it attaches to the changeover of ages here 
This notion that God is dead echoed in an Elton John song even. So this is the kind of influence this guy has had on popular culture in the modern era. So Friedrich Nietzsche, he wrote a book near the end of his life called The Antichrist. And that is exactly what we're going to be reading from tonight. I will tell you, well, I'm just going to read directly from the pages in black and white from the book written by Nietzsche. This book was originally published in 1895. The version we're reading is a 1918 reprint, and it was further uh, had addendums and stuff added to it, and an introduction added by one Mr. H.L. Mencken in the beginning in 18 or 1931. So it's a very old book, but uh, this is credited as being one of Nietzsche's last writings. And we'll see just what kind of ideas that Nietzsche put out there, the nature of those ideas. Now, many people will argue, ah, that's nonsense. There's no contention against Christianity. You're just making stuff up. No, that's not true. I mean, absolutely, we see this very pointed type of an opinion or attitude towards all things Christian within the circles of popular culture and within the, the circles of our education system. And a lot of it derives from the thinking of this guy. Because if you talk to a lot of these academics, they certainly are well read in the philosophical stuff relating to Nietzsche and his ideas. And they seem to give this guy a whole lot of credit. They, they seem to give him an air of respect that I don't know if he really honestly deserves. Was he really that forward of a thinker? And we're going to read directly his words here tonight, and you can formulate that opinion. But I don't think it could be denied that much of what he espoused have become some of the underpinnings of modern academia, the modern university system, our modern school system, education in the modern day. And these ideals and ideas that he put forward are very anti-Christian in their values. And we'll see, as we read through this, you, you might be shocked at some of what you're going to hear. Coming from this guy's own writings here tonight. If you've never read anything of Nietzsche's, it certainly can be rather shocking to see just what his attitudes really were. And he's held up on a high pedestal by those academic eggheads out there, as I like to call them, who think they're so smart and think they're so sophisticated and so beyond all of the rest of us. And these are the attitudes that they espouse, and we'll get right into it here without further ado. So first, we're going to start here in the preface. I'm not going to read all the introductory stuff written by H.L. Mencken. I'm just going to get right to the meat of the matter and into Nietzsche's words himself. And this is the preface that Nietzsche wrote himself. So let's get right into it. This book belongs to the most rare of men. Perhaps not one of them is yet alive. It is possible that they may be among those who understand my Zarathustra. How could I confound myself with those who are now sprouting ears? First, the day after tomorrow must come for me. Some men are born posthumously. 
the conditions under which any one understands me, and necessarily understands me, I know them only too well. Even to endure my seriousness, my passion, he must carry intellectual integrity to the verge of hardness. He must be accustomed to living on mountaintops, and to looking upon the wretched gabble of politics and nationalism as beneath him. He must have become indifferent. He must never ask of the truth whether it brings profit to him or a fatality to him. He must have an inclination born of strength for questions that no one has the courage for, the courage for the forbidden, predestination for the labyrinth, the experience of seven solitudes, new ears for new music, new eyes for what is most distant, a new conscience for truths that have hitherto remained unheard, and the will to economize in the grand manner, to hold together his strength, his enthusiasm, Reverence for self, love of self, absolute freedom of self. Very well, then, of that sort only are my readers, my true readers, my readers foreordained. Of what account are the rest? The rest are merely humanity. One must make one's self superior to humanity, in power, in loftiness of soul, in contempt. Signed, Friedrich W. Nietzsche. 1895. And that's just the preface, folks. So understand contempt. He holds contempt for humanity in his heart. This philosopher that they put on this high pedestal in the circles of academia, he has contempt, real contempt for humanity. He sees all of the conditions of mankind as being beneath him, the wretched gabble of politics and nationalism that are beneath him. And I could understand some of, you know, the those feelings, because when I look at politics, I, I, I likely also like wretch looking at that, because I know it's garbage for the mind and the soul. And understanding that, I understand his position on that, but... Uh, he holds all of humanity in this contempt. As you can see, much of his language very much mirrors those things taught within the confines of Aleister Crowley's Thelema. It's all about the will, the love of self, reverence for self, absolute freedom of self. You see? So... With that being the case, we could hear the echoes of things that would come later through Crowley and various others within the secret society groups. And we see how all of these ideals and ideas are built one upon the other here. And Nietzsche had a role in this. He understood many of the same things that those in the secret schools claim to espouse. Claimed these things as truths. And yes, humanity can be ugly at times. I will concede to that, but uh, I think greater than anything is love, not will. And these people are all about the will, the self, the deification of the self. And Nietzsche was no different. So let's get right into it. The Antichrist. Let us look each other in the face. We are Hyperboreans. We know well enough how remote our place is. 
Neither by land nor by water will you find the road to the Hyperboreans. Even Pindar in his day knew that much about us. Beyond the north, beyond the ice, beyond death. Our life, our happiness. We have discovered that happiness. We know the way. We got our knowledge of it from thousands of years in the labyrinth. Who else has found it, the man of today? I don't know either the way out or the way in. I am whatever doesn't know either the way out or the way in, so sighs the man of today. This is the sort of modernity that made us ill. We sickened on lazy peace, cowardly compromise, the whole virtuous dirtiness of the modern yea and nay. This tolerance and larguer of the heart that forgives everything because it understands everything is a Sirocco to us. Rather live amid the ice than among modern virtues and other such south winds. We were brave enough, we spared neither ourselves nor others, but we were a long time finding out where to direct our courage. We grew dismal, they called us fatalists. Our fate, it was the fullness, the tension, the storing up of powers. We thirsted for the lightnings and great deeds. We kept as far as possible from the happiness of the weakling, from resignation. There was thunder in our air. Nature, as we embodied it, became overcast, for we had not yet found the way. The formula of our happiness, a yea, a nay, a straight line, a goal. What is good? Whatever augments the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. So listen to Nietzsche's definition of what is good. I'll repeat that. And then we'll continue on. And we'll define a couple more terms from this guy's perspective and from the perspective of those in the elite circles of power today that have promulgated these ideas far and wide and have riddled our academic system with them. And then we wonder why we have a generation like we do today, confused, godless, Searching for meaning and not finding any because they're looking in all the wrong places for it. They're seeking to achieve goals which bring about worldly pleasures that are temporal. They don't satisfy the soul. Mankind thrives for the spiritual. It's an inherent need in human nature. And sometimes we seek it in all the wrong places when we're confused about what that truly is. When we're indoctrinated with some of these ideals, these anti-human ideals, for a very long time, it's hard to get back on the right trail for many people. So let's repeat that again. Nietzsche asks, what is good? And then he answers, Whatever augments the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. Then he goes on to ask, what is evil? Whatever springs from weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. 
not contentment, but more power. Not peace at any price, but war. Not virtue, but efficiency. Virtue, in the Renaissance sense, virtue, free of moral acid. The weak and the botched shall perish. First principle of our charity, of our charity, he says. And one should help them to it. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So in Nietzsche's view, this sounds very much Darwinian, doesn't it? Sounds like eugenics talk. Let's listen to that again. The weak and the botched shall perish. The first principle of our charity. And one should help them to it. What is more harmful than any vice? Practical sympathy for the botched and the weak. Christianity. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. This is the direct words from Nietzsche himself, the one so venerated by those in academia. All of those that espouse to be so much more intelligent and intellectual than the rest of us, the ones that know best, the ones that are running this place right now, this is their attitude. They believe what's har more harmful than any vice well, having sympathy for the weak and the wretched and the botched. Christianity. And they, you'll notice that Nietzsche attaches Christianity to that sympathy for the weak. That altruistic idea. He identifies Christianity with it. Let's continue reading, though. I don't want to give you any false interpretations of what he's saying here. You can discern for yourself. I'm just reading the words from the page. I will add my thoughts here and there. But in my honest estimation, this guy and many of those who put this guy on a high pedestal are pathetic, ridiculous, inhumane in their thinking, the antithesis of what is good and right. Let's read on here. So Nietzsche continues. The problem that I set here is not what shall replace mankind in the order of living creatures, and it says in parentheses, man is an end, but what type of man must be bred, must be willed as being the most valuable, the most worthy of life, the most secure guarantee of the future. This more valuable type has appeared often enough in the past, but always as a happy accident, as an exception, never as deliberately willed. Very often it has been precisely the most feared. Hitherto it has been almost the terror of terrors, and out of that terror the contrary type has been willed, cultivated, and attained. The domestic animal, the herd animal, the sick brute man, the Christian. Going to pause for a moment again there, folks. So are you beginning to understand Nietzsche's view of Christians and of mankind in general here? He sees you as being little more than a domestic animal or a herd animal. He calls you the sick brute man, the Christian, and he relates this back to Christianity once again. The Christian, he has outright contempt for Christianity and many of these people who have had such a massive influence on culture and society in the modern era 
have this same vitriolic hatred for Christianity and for the virtues of Christianity. You know, common sense things, logical things like taking care of your fellow man, recognizing our frailties, our weaknesses, and having sympathy or empathy for others, helping people, the very definition of love, they promote and promulgate the very opposite of that. They have no sympathy for the weak and the botched, as Nietzsche calls them here. And in fact, they see it as their duty to end those types as quickly as they can. And he's espousing some very eugenics-based ideas here. So now you understand a little more of why Darwinian evolution caught on, why eugenics-based ideas have caught on, and why they're still being promoted today. Let's read on. Mankind surely does not represent an evolution toward a better or stronger or higher level, as progress is now understood. This progress is merely a modern idea, which is to say, a false idea. The European of today, in his essential worth, falls far below the European of the Renaissance. The process of evolution does not necessarily mean elevation, enhancement, strengthening. True enough, it succeeds in isolated and individual cases in various parts of the earth and under the most widely different cultures, and in these cases a higher type certainly manifests itself, something which, compared to mankind in the mass, appears as a sort of superman. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Remember, this was originally written in German, and he called the superman Ubermensch, if you've heard that term. This is an English translation from 1918, as I had said earlier. Let's continue on. Such happy strokes of high success have always been possible and will remain possible, perhaps, for all time to come. Even whole races, tribes, and nations may occasionally represent such lucky accidents. We should not deck out and embellish Christianity. It has waged a war to the death against this higher type of man. It has put all the deepest instincts of this type under its ban. It has developed its concept of evil of the evil one himself out of these instincts. The strong man is a typical reprobate, the outcast among men. Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservative instincts of sound life. It has corrupted even the faculties of those natures that are intellectually most vigorous by representing the highest intellectual values as sinful, as misleading, as full of temptation. The most lamentable example, the corruption of Pascal, who believed that his intellect had been destroyed by original sin, whereas it was actually destroyed by Christianity going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see Nietzsche, Nietzsche blames all of these problems of society on Christianity. And I don't think that's a fair assessment. Not a fair assessment at all. He says that uh, Christianity intellectually stifles people. 
Christianity is antagonistic to the very nature of man. Now, I could see some of his perspective on things. And I understand Christianity has had its problems. Things done in the name of Christianity through the years have had their problems. But make no mistake, that does not represent those things that Christ taught us. These things that have been done. Done by men who claimed to represent Christianity. Claimed to represent Jesus, but certainly did not. But this is the viewpoint that Nietzsche brings to the table. And because he uses intellectual-sounding rhetoric, he has won over very many people through the years to this way of thinking. And you know what? This way of thinking leads to death-based ideologies, as we'll see as we continue reading here. And it's really... Not all that uplifting, is it? Doesn't do anything to offer hope to humanity. The only hope it offers is that every now and again one of these supermen, as he calls them, may, may be born and begin to do some good things in the world. But it's those pesky Christians, you see. Those pesky Christians and those pesky people with these altruistic ideas the ones that want to maintain the weak, and there's no room for the weak. Do you see the attitude that comes across? Anyway, I, I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth. He'll tell you himself. Let's continue reading. It is a painful and tragic spectacle that rises before me. I have drawn back the curtain from the rottenness of man. This word in my mouth is at least free from one suspicion that it involves a moral accusation against humanity. It is used, and I wish to emphasize the fact again, without any moral significance. And this is so far true that the rottenness I speak of is most apparent to me precisely in those quarters where there has been most aspiration hitherto towards virtue and godliness. As you probably surmise, I understand rottenness in the sense of decadence. My argument is that all the values on which mankind now fixes its highest aspirations are decadence values. I call an animal, a species, an individual corrupt when it loses its instincts, when it chooses, when it prefers what is injurious to it. A history of the higher feelings, the ideals of humanity, and it is possible that I'll have to write it, would almost explain why man is so degenerate. Life itself appears to me as an instinct for growth, for survival, for the accumulation of forces, for power. Whenever the will to power fails, there is disaster." My contention is that all the highest values of humanity have been emptied of this will, that the values of decadence, of nihilism, now prevail under the holiest names. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Nietzsche says the will to power is this will to survival, and it should be the highest achievement or pursuit of the human being, 
of any creature, this instinct to survive. So he thinks that having empathy for your fellow man and taking care of your fellow man in his weakness is stepping away from your natural instincts, stepping away from the natural order of things. You see, so he's arguing the whole philosophy that Darwinian evolution was built upon, that eugenics was built upon, all these false notions, and they are false notions, folks, the foundations of Darwinian evolution and, of course, the eugenics from which it sprang. That's right. Darwinian evolution sprang from eugenics before it was even called eugenics or thought of as a term. You see, these two things go hand in hand, Darwinian evolution and eugenics. They were both promulgated around the same time by cousins. Charles Darwin was the cousin of Sir Francis Galton, the man who coined the term eugenics. And they both had connections within the royal society and the various power circles during those days. And of course, they had connections to the secret society groups from which these ideas sprang forth at that time. And then you had guys like Nietzsche that latched onto this and wholeheartedly put all his might and effort into reifying these ideas as being true. And using the art of rhetoric to get his point across. Now, don't get me wrong. Nietzsche was a very powerful rhetorician. He was good at using rhetoric to try to get people to see his point of view and to support his point of view. But he's grossly wrong. And that's the problem. And much of this you know in your gut. Much of what he's saying here is based on lies, manipulation, falsity, and death. The death-based ideas come into play once again, and that's what you can always use as a measuring stick. Does it promote the ideas supporting life, or does it promote the ideas supporting death? And you could use that as a good gauge for discernment with things. So we see that... Nietzsche here very much espouses these death-based ideas, although he thinks that Christianity in particular and general human decency in, gen in general are the very things that will lead to nihilism. You see, it really is a backwards way of looking at things. But this is the attitude taken by those in positions of power today. They see anything spiritual as being negative or leading to catastrophe, leading to disaster, like Nietzsche says here. You see, he says... Life itself appears to me as an instinct for growth, for survival, for the accumulation of forces, for power. Whenever the will to power fails, there is disaster. So he's saying that power is the most important thing, this will to power, because it is the survival instinct of man. It's the, the best, survival of the fittest. You see, the attachment to the Darwinian ideas. And, well, I'll read on, because I'm pretty sure he makes 
the connection back to Darwinian ideas himself here. Let's continue reading. Christianity is called the religion of pity. Pity stands in opposition to all the tonic passions that augment the energy of the feeling of aliveness. It is a depressant. A man loses power when he pities. Through pity, that drain upon strength which suffering works is multiplied a thousandfold. Suffering is made contagious by pity. Under certain circumstances, it may lead to a total sacrifice of life and living energy, a loss out of all proportion to the magnitude of the cause, and he puts in parentheses here, the case of the death of the Nazarene. This is the first view of it. There is, however, a still more important one. If one measures the effects of pity by the gravity of the reactions it sets up, its character as a menace to life appears in much clearer light. Pity thwarts the whole law of evolution, which is the law of natural selection. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. There it is. So you see, Nietzsche adopted the attitude and the idea that the whole law of evolution is the law of natural selection. This very Darwinian idea put forward, it's the survival of the fittest, and to have pity for your fellow man, or to take care of him in his weakened state, is the antithesis of your will to power and your survival. You see, they really really do have contempt for humanity, especially those that they see as being beneath themselves. You see, the weak and the dumb, they should be eliminated. They should be manipulated. This is how they feel about it. If you're gullible enough, well, then you deserve what you get. That's their attitude. Or if you're weak and you can't defend yourself, you don't deserve to live. That's the attitude these people have and espouse. And this has permeated our culture, primarily starting in the education system, in the academic circles, the circles of academia. And it's a real problem, folks. There's no human decency anymore. If you throw God out of your society, what do you expect? Well, it is survival of the fittest in that case. That's the system they want set up. And then they do everything in their power to ensure that they have total dominance, full-spectrum dominance. These small groups of intellectuals that put themselves in these positions of power, you know, the ones that rub elbows at the World Economic Forum and at Davos and all of these different places, the trilateral meetings... All of these folks who think themselves so much smarter and better than the rest of us. They're the ones that have this attitude. They're the ones that do everything in their power to keep us in this weakened state. And then they also have the added attitude that because we allow ourselves to be held in this weakened state, that we're not worthy we're not worthy of what we have, so we deserve everything we get. And they'll be the ones that'll set up something like, uh, oh, I don't know, a universal basic income to keep people dependent upon their system. And then when the time is right, 
and they decide that, hey, there's a lack of resources, you're worthless, we're cutting you off. And that's the attitude that they have. It's survival of the fittest, you know. If you can't go out and, you know, earn your own way, even though we've stacked the deck against you innumerable ways, left, right, into the center, everywhere, stacked against you, against you getting ahead. If you haven't done well enough to get beyond that, well, you don't deserve to have this life. That's how they feel about you. All based upon the law of natural selection, as Nietzsche calls it here. So let's go ahead and I'll read a portion of that again and continue on from there. Pity thwarts the whole law of evolution, which is the law of natural selection. It preserves whatever is ripe for destruction. It fights on the side of this disinherited and condemned by life. By maintaining life in so many of the botched of all kinds, it gives life itself a gloomy and dubious aspect. Mankind has ventured to call pity a virtue, and it says in parentheses here, in every superior moral system it appears as a weakness. Going still further, it has been called the virtue, the source and foundation of all other virtues. But let us always bear in mind that this was from the standpoint of a philosophy that was nihilistic, and upon whose shield the denial of life was inscribed. Schopenhauer was right in this, that by means of pity life is denied, and made worthy of denial. Pity is the technique of nihilism. Let me repeat, this depressing and contagious instinct stands against all those instincts which work for the preservation and enhancement of life. In the role of protector of the miserable, it is a prime agent in the promotion of decadence. Pity persuades to extinction. Of course, one doesn't say extinction. One says the other world, or God, or the true life, or nirvana, salvation, blessedness. This innocent rhetoric from the realm of religious ethical balderdash appears a good deal less innocent when one reflects upon the tendency that it conceals beneath sublime words, the tendency to destroy life. Schopenhauer was hostile to life. That is why pity appeared to him as a virtue. Aristotle, as everyone knows, saw in pity a sickly and dangerous state of mind, the remedy for which was an occasional purgative. He regarded tragedy as that purgative. The instinct of life should prompt us to seek some means of puncturing any such pathological and dangerous accumulation of pity as that appearing in Schopenhauer's case and it says in parentheses here, and also a lack in that of our whole literary decadence from St. Petersburg to Paris, from Tolstoy to Wagner, that it may burst and be discharged. Nothing is more unhealthy amid all our unhealthy modernism than Christian pity. To be the doctors here, to be unmerciful here, to wield the knife here, all this is our business, all this is our sort of humanity. By this sign we are philosophers, we Hyperboreans. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Hyperboreans. This is the master race. 
the Hyperboreans, if you go back and look at the Nazi ideals, this would be what they would consider the roots of the Aryan race, the Hyperboreans. Same ideas being espoused here by Nietzsche, slightly differently. And he says that pity, or having concern for your fellow human being, showing mercy, having empathy or sympathy for your fellow being, is a type of weakness that leads to extinction. And he sees this as being a weakness. Now remember, they consider virtue a weakness in this regard. And then you wonder why the world's in the state that it's in. To be the doctors here, to be unmerciful here, to wield the knife here, all this is our business, all this is our sort of humanity, by this sign, we are philosophers, we Hyperboreans. Or he might as well have said Olympians there. Because he's speaking directly in this passage to those who know in the secret society groups. Their plan is, was, and always has been the same thing. It's a depopulation agenda, folks. That's what it's about. They don't want any disturbance to their will to power. It's the survival of the fittest. Their prime motivator has always been depopulating. Depopulating the group. Use of all the resources for themselves. The self. Now, are you beginning to understand how this attaches to the idea of the higher self and how they justify in their own minds their actions by claiming some divine virtue of their own? Claiming that their higher self, this is the only God in this place, it's your higher self, and when you tap into your higher self and you perform your will, then you are like a God and you are not bound by any moralistic codes or natural laws. There's no such thing in their view. They're not bound by that. There's no absolute standard of right or wrong in their view. The only standard of right or wrong is the law of the jungle. Survival of the fittest, natural selection, as espoused in the Darwinian ideas, in the eugenics ideas. That's what they espouse. And these people have infiltrated deep within the academic circles of the world, all the colleges and universities. There's always some staunch professor there who thinks they're so much better and smarter than everybody that goes around bragging about how they read Nietzsche and this kind of thing, and they understand all of this, and they think, you know, Christianity is horrible, and that you're, you're a fool if you believe that. You're a fool if you follow that. You're a bitter clinger, as Obama once called us, clinging to your religion and your guns, a bitter clinger. You're backwards. You're unsophisticated. That's how these people think about you. You're a herd animal. 
That's what their true thoughts are on you. And we have these clowns getting tenure. And I gotta love that word, tenure. I'm a professor with tenure in academia. Well, good for you. What have you ever done? Have you ever worked a real job a day in your life? No. Wouldn't know what an honest day's labor is truly like. In most cases, I may be overgeneralizing, but uh, very much so. A lot of these professors in the universities who espouse these ideas, they get paid six digits or more and have tenure and all of this academic clout and... You know, they, they barely work 20 hours a week, if even that much, and if you could even call it work. And they're highly respected and regarded, and many of them wind up within these secret society groups, one way or the other. I would say almost, almost all of them. I would say there's probably a good 90% of academic professors out there in high places in the universities that have tenure, well, I'm sure they probably belong to one or more secret society groups. I would say there's a large percentage of that that goes on because that's the nature of the very things they teach and espouse. And that's the very nature of how these people have infiltrated throughout all of society by placing people in these prominent positions in places like universities to get their minions and their ideologies out there to the next generation and recruit from there. And this is certainly what we see. And this is the influence that is in our education system from the top down. The universities especially, the colleges. Now it does trickle down through the other schools, through the, the high schools and the junior high and the elementary schools even. It trickles down. But much of it resides within the higher echelons of academia the university systems, you see. And I'm sure there's probably some of you out there who may have had some experience with this, may have seen some of this firsthand. But at any rate, this is how they view themselves. In the same way Nietzsche outlines it here, and this is at the core of what's going on in society today. This is why Western culture is so anti-Christian anymore. And we're kind of a little bit jaded here in the U.S. We don't see it as much. Now, we do see lots of jibe, jibes made at Christianity here, but it's not like it is in other places in the world where Christians are outright persecuted. Christianity in China, there's, there's a vast movement towards Christianity happening secretly in China right now. And they those people, when they get caught, they pay the ultimate price many times because that is completely outlawed in China. Christianity is not allowed. There's other places around the world where real, real, physical, nasty persecution occurs to Christians. And many of those Christians have far more courage than we do here in the U.S. to stand our ground on our beliefs. Many of us just kowtow to it. And I know Jesus said to turn the other cheek, but there's only so much of that you can do without being trampled. And certainly out of self-preservation at some point, 
we have to point out the evil in our mists. And when you call out the evil, well, that draws more attention by the evil. And it creates some ugly situations, no doubt about it. But remember, it's our mandate to call out the evil as we see it. If you consider yourself a Christian, it's your mandate to call it out. We're taught to discern. We're told we need to discern the spirits. And we see this spirit of Antichrist rampant here in America today, rampant in the Western world, Western culture. And a lot of it relates directly to these ideals that have been promoted through academia by people like Nietzsche. And he actually titled this the Antichrist because he was so opposed to Christianity, but he represents the Antichrist as being a good notion. And that's how most of the modern societies have gone with this. They see Christianity as negative and being anti-Christianity as positive. Look around. Look at what they call virtue today. Look around. Woe to him that calls evil good and good evil. And that's the culture and the society we're living in today, folks. And they got it backwards. They truly think they're doing good by, you know, trying to discredit Christianity, by trying to kowtow Christianity, make it sound like it's a silly, backwards, old, religious, nonsense, mythological tale kind of thing. This is the attitude they give towards it. And when they do, and they hold up their new god that they call science, they think they're doing the world a service, when in fact, they're completely missing the point. They're missing the point. And most of them don't do it out of say, this, you know, dark hubris, as some of the ones at the topmost levels of the power structure do. But most of them do this just because they really sincerely think that this is right. And they've never bothered to actually really learn anything about the Holy Bible or Christianity in and of itself. Never bothered to try to have that one-on-one relationship with God themselves. They've thrown everything godly and spiritual out of their lives and are attached to this hyper-materialist paradigm. And those are the ones that espouse this ideology. They're the ones that think everything could be related back to some physical principle, some physical material world principle. Everything could be explained in this way. And they don't want to bend their brains too much by thinking about things that are more subjective that they can't possibly comprehend. You know, spiritual things. Or the idea that life continues after death. That we have a soul that is attached to this body, yet exists separately from this body when we pass on here. When we die. And that this energy field that is the soul transcends to other planes that they can't possibly comprehend. They don't like to think in those terms. They will laugh at you and say that's all nonsense. There's no way to prove that. Well, the whole big joke here is there's no way to prove the things that they believe either. Even by their own methods, they've failed miserably, but yet they will espouse things that they call science in the most unscientific way possible. <laughs> and, and they call it science still. Now, scientific method is a mode of observation wherein you can objectively measure things. 
So even these things that they can't objectively measure and or repeat, they still uphold as science because, well, it's the consensus belief. But it is a belief. <laughs> it's not based upon objective facts. But they'll espouse it as absolute veritas. And that's wherein the problem lies. It's this disconnect. What it is, is it's this avoidance of anything spiritual and the immediate retreat to that which is familiar, the physical, the material. That's what these people do. Rudolf Steiner described this as the spirit of Ahriman in the modern era here. I would say that's a definite aspect of the Antichrist spirit. That's my view. But let's continue reading here because there's more to get through. I don't want to put words in Nietzsche's mouth. I don't need to. He's outlining it very clearly, plain and simple here, for you to understand. Remember, most people don't read this stuff because you're either an academic with too much time on your hands and think you're oh so smart and you'll read this philosophy and, you know, try to confound the Christians in your life with it. Or you're, and or I should say, you're a member of the secret fraternities or brotherhoods who are just looking for ways to belittle and flabbergast those beneath your station, or at least that's your viewpoint. Those are the types that read this crap. And it is utter crap, folks. It is. I read this for the sake of exposing it to the world. It invariably leads to these types of writings. If you start exploring occultism and the secret societies for long enough, you'll find Nietzsche. You'll find Kant. You'll find all of these different quote-unquote philosophers. They're central to a lot of the things that they've tried to espouse in the secret schools through the years. So invariably, if you start delving into it, you'll find this stuff. And most people just don't have the stomach for it. Let's be honest. Because this, this, is, this is utter trash and garbage, these ideas that are being espoused here by Nietzsche. But you see, those in circles of academia and circles of power in this world, they see this as being upper echelon, high-tier stuff, right? It's intellectual. They're, it's also smart. And, you know, you lower-thinking people just don't appreciate it because you're not sophisticated enough. You're not evolved enough. That's what it comes down to. Once again, this whole notion of evolution which began in the secret society groups a long, long, long time ago, was grossly misconstrued and made into a material world paradigm thing by the onset of what we call Darwinian evolution and the eugenics-based ideas and held up by guys like this, Nietzsche. Anyway, let's go ahead and we'll continue reading here. It is necessary to say just whom we regard as our antagonists, theologians and all who have any theological blood in their veins. This is our whole philosophy. One must have faced that menace at close hand. Better still, 
One must have had experience of it directly and almost succumb to it to realize that it is not to be taken lightly, and it says in parentheses, the alleged free thinking of our naturalists and physiologists seems to me to be a joke. They have no passion about such things. They have not suffered. Then Nietzsche goes on to say, This poisoning goes a great deal further than most people think. I find the arrogant habit of the theologian among all who regard themselves as idealists, among all who, by virtue of a higher point of departure, claim a right to rise above reality and to look upon it with suspicion. The idealist, like the ecclesiastic, carries all sorts of lofty concepts in his hand, and then it says in parentheses, and not only in his hand. He launches them with benevolent contempt against understanding, the senses, honor, good living, science. He sees such things as beneath him, as pernicious and seductive forces on which the soul soars as a pure thing in itself, as if humility, chastity, poverty, in a word holiness, had not already done much more damage to life than all imaginable horrors and vices. The pure soul is a pure lie. So long as the priest, that professional denier, calumniator, and poisoner of life, is accepted as a higher variety of man, there can be no answer to the question, what is truth? Truth has already been stood on its head when the obvious attorney of mere emptiness is mistaken for its representative. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Nietzsche pretty much accuses theologians, Christian priests, preachers, these kind of people as being the very thing that he most certainly is that we can see here. He says that under the benevolent contempt against humanity, they espouse ideas like understanding, the senses, honor, good living, science as beneath them. He says holiness has already done much more damage to human life than all of the other imaginable horrors and vices. Really? Holiness? So, so being a holy person or somebody that respects life, that has done more damage than all of the other vices and horrors. And this is the man that they put on this high pedestal. These are his true thoughts. Let's continue reading. Upon this theological instinct, I make war. I find the tracks of it everywhere. Whoever has theological blood in his veins is shifty and dishonorable in all things. The pathetic thing that grows out of this condition is called faith. In other words, closing one's eyes upon one's self once and once for all to avoid suffering the sight of incurable falsehood. People erect a concept of morality, of virtue, of holiness upon this false view of all things. They ground good conscience upon faulty vision. They argue that no other sort of vision has value anymore. Once they have made theirs sacrosanct with the names of God, salvation, and eternity. 
I unearth this theological instinct in all directions. It is the most widespread and the most subterranean form of falsehood to be found on earth. Whatever a theologian regards as true must be false. There you have almost a criterion of truth. His profound instinct of self-preservation stands against truth ever coming into honor in any way or getting stated. Wherever the influence of the theologians is felt, there is a transvaluation of values, and the concepts true and false are forced to change places. Whatever is most damaging to life is there called true, and whatever exalts it, intensifies it, approves it, justifies it, and makes it triumphant is there called false. When theologians working through the consciences of princes or of peoples stretch out their hands for power, there is never any doubt as to the fundamental issue, the will to make an end. The nihilistic will exert its power. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So here, right here, is the very notion of where I get the title for this episode, Academia's War on Christianity. Nietzsche espoused it right here. He says, Upon this theological instinct I make war. He's warring with God. You know what, folks? Nietzsche lost. <laughs> Those who espouse Nietzsche's philosophy are going to lose, have lost already. You're not going to win a battle with God Almighty, the Creator who made all things. You can deny it all you would like. You could call it sacrosanct. You could call it pathetic. You could say that anybody who has any kind of this religious notion or side to them is pathetic. That faith is pathetic. That's what he says. I'll read the, those words again. Quote, this is directly from Nietzsche, quote, The pathetic thing that grows out of this condition is called faith. In other words, closing one's eyes upon one's self once for all to avoid suffering the sight of incurable falsehood, end quote. If you have faith, you're weak in his view, you're pathetic. You don't deserve to live because you've lost the instinct to live. Do you see how he's turned everything on its head here? Even the things taught within these secret mystery schools and secret society groups, they teach you that your animalistic tendencies or instincts are bad and that you need to develop into the higher self and step into the spiritual. But this guy espouses the idea that to deny your animal instincts is going against against that which is right you see so he's using the argument here that this is the self-preservation tendency survival of the fittest you see how he's adopted the darwinian ideas directly into his mindset and he calls the other side nihilism nihilism he thinks that this spiritual component of people will lead to nihilism he thinks that it's this religious ideology that leads to all troubles inherent in the world. 
And by and large, we have seen that religious disagreements between peoples have caused some conflict. But here's what you need to keep in mind. Much of this has always been, from the very beginning of time, contrived by those in the circles of power. Look at how wars allegedly start. Look at how this stuff allegedly starts. Look at what we're told and lied to about in the news media. They could tell you that this person from way across the ocean over there, they hate you because you have freedoms here in America, and we need to therefore go bomb them. Think about this. Think about that logically for a second. This person who doesn't know you has their own concerns that is very much just like you, just trying to raise their family and go about their daily lives and maybe having enough food to eat on the table, maybe be able to plan a vacation or something at some point, stop working so hard. All the same concerns for you, for your future, everything else. These people have the same concerns as you. Really, they hate you for your freedoms, so they want you dead. So therefore, the only thing to do is to strike first. So your nation will go out and bomb them. Allegedly for this reason, it's all contrived, and it's always been these same small group of people in positions of prominence in this world, these small elite secret society groups who have started all of this, promulgated all of this, push all of this, and it's all based on fraud and lies. Nobody in their right mind wants to cause contention with another person just because they're different. That's retarded. I'm sorry. That is by definition retarded. What good comes from that? Well, it certainly enriches the bankers, doesn't it? It certainly enriches those people in these positions of power. Gives them wealth and comforts and privileges. That's why they fund both sides of every war. All the wars in this world could stop tomorrow if the central bank said, Nah, we're not giving you money for that. We're not going to help you build those tanks. We're not going to help you build those missiles. We're not going to fund you for that. We're not going to finance that anymore. And they could do that to both sides. Defund the war effort on both sides. And guess what? Nothing would happen. It would stop immediately. All this bull crap that's going on in Ukraine could stop instantly if the central banks stop pumping money into it. They can do that. But this is the class of people that's running things, and it's all a contrivance to get your mind in this trap. And that's what it is. It's about pushing and promulgating these ideas of hate and these death-based ideas, because you know what? They don't want you around. These small, this small group of people in positions of power, this central elite group in this world that controls things, these dark occultists at the top. They don't want you eating up their valuable resources. You might be useful to some extent to them as a type of slave labor or some such thing, a wage slave for a portion of time. But you're what they call the useless eaters. This is what how they view things. You're one of the useless eaters. So at some point you are 
scheduled for extermination. Make no mistake about that. I'm I'm done pulling punches with these people. I'm done mincing words. They want you dead in no uncertain terms, especially if you're a Christian. They do not like you. You represent an obstacle to their grasp, their desperate grasp for power in this world, for their goal to achieve godhood here, to become the gods of this place, their apotheosis. Your simple existence, the simple fact of your existence is an obstacle in their way. And that's why they very, very much want to eliminate Christianity from the face of the earth. That's why there is this war on Christianity that's happening all across our society, but especially within academia. Academia does not take Christianity seriously. They do everything in their power to belittle Christianity, to try to discredit Christianity. It's a war. It's a declared war. Nietzsche gave the marching orders right here. Here it is. Do you want more proof? Let's read on. Among Germans, I am immediately understood when I say that theological blood is the ruin of philosophy. The Protestant pastor is the grandfather of German philosophy. Protestantism itself is its peccatum originale. Definition of Protestantism, hemiplegic paralysis of Christianity, and of reason. One need only utter the words Tübingen school to get an understanding of what German philosophy is at bottom, a very artful form of theology. The Swabians are the best liars in Germany. They lie innocently. Why, all the rejoicing over the appearance of Kant that went through the learned world of Germany, three-fourths of which is made up of the sons of preachers and teachers, why the German conviction still echoing that with Kant came a change for the better, the theological instinct of German scholars made them see clearly just what had become possible again. A backstairs leading to the old ideal stood open, the concept of the true world, the concept of morality as the essence of the world, and it says in parentheses, the two most vicious errors that ever existed. So I'm going to pause for a minute here. The concept of morality and the essence of the world, which Nietzsche calls the two most vicious errors that ever existed. Let's continue on. We're once more, thanks to a subtle and wily skepticism, if not actually demonstrable, then at least no longer refutable. Reason, the prerogative of reason, does not go so far. Out of reality there had been made appearance. An absolutely false world, that of being had been turned into reality. The success of Kant is merely a theological success. He was, like Luther and Leibniz, but one more imp impediment to German integrity, already far from steady. A word now against Kant as a moralist. A virtue must be our invention. It must spring out of our need and defense. And I'm going to pause for a moment here just to point out the fact, because I'm reading this verbally out loud to you, you don't see what's on the page here. But if you look on the page, the word our 
is in italics, thus designating that this is a special class of people to whom he's referring. And of course, these would be the occultists in the secret society groups. Those in the know. So see, he says here, a virtue must be our invention. It must spring out of our personal need and defense. In every other case, it is a source of danger. That which does not belong to our life menaces it. A virtue which has its roots in mere respect for the concept of virtue, as Kant would have it, also pernicious. Virtue, duty, good for its own sake, goodness grounded upon impersonality or a notion of universal validity, these are all chimeras, and in them one finds only an expression of the decay, the last collapse of life, the Chinese spirit of Konigsberg, quite the contrary, is demanded by the most profound laws of self-preservation and of growth, to wit that every man find his own virtue, his own categorical imperative. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Nietzsche here is calling for moral relativism. No absolute standard of right or wrong. Anything that's virtue should be determined by the individual. You see... No standard applies across the board. No natural law designation. This is what they believe and they push. Let's continue. A nation goes to pieces when it confounds its duty with the general concept of duty. Nothing works a more complete and penetrating disaster than every impersonal duty, every sacrifice before the Moloch of abstraction, to think that no one has thought of Kant's categorical imperative as dangerous to life. The theological instinct alone took it under protection. An action prompted by the life instinct proves that it is a right action by the amount of pleasure that goes with it. And yet the nihilist, with his bowels of Christian dogmatism, regarded pleasure as an objection. What destroys a man more quickly than to work think and feel, without inner necessity, without any deep personal desire, without pleasure, as a mere automaton of duty, this is the recipe for decadence and no less for idiocy. Kant became an idiot, and such a man was the contemporary of Goethe. This calamitous spinner of cobwebs passed for the German philosopher still passes today, I forbid myself to say what I think of the Germans. Didn't Kant see in the French Revolution the transformation of the state from the inorganic form to the organic? Didn't he ask himself if there was a single event that could be explained, save on the assumption of a moral faculty in man, so that on the basis of it, the tendency of mankind toward the good could be explained once and for all time? Kant's answer, that is revolution. Instinct at fault in everything and anything. Instinct as a revolt against nature. German decadence as a philosophy. That is Kant. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. So this guy even had little regard for his contemporaries. Do you see how absolutely despicable this Nietzsche guy was, honestly, and they put him on a high pedestal. 
They talk about him as, oh, he's oh so smart. He's oh so sophisticated. His philosophies are all so true. These are the kinds of people that the academics look up to. The ideas that they they promote within the university system, within the colleges and the school systems. And we wonder why society is in the state that it is today. They have contempt for anything spiritual. Contempt for their fellow human being, for anything that we would call good and right and virtuous. They have contempt for it. It violates what they see as the natural law of this place. And that would be the law that they named Darwinian evolution. Natural selection. That's what all this is based on. It's all eugenics ideas, death-based ideas. They've taken the evolution idea, turned it into a wholesale form of death, essentially. And these are the philosophies that undergird our social structure, especially within the academic world. Anyway, let's continue on. I want to go through one more section here, and then we'll sign off. I put aside a few skeptics, the types of decency in the history of philosophy. The rest haven't the slightest conception of intellectual integrity. They behave like women, all these great enthusiasts and prodigies. They regard beautiful feelings as arguments, the heaving breast as the bellows of divine inspiration, conviction as the criterion of truth. In the end, with German innocence, Kant tried to give a scientific flavor to this form of corruption, this dearth of intellectual conscience, by calling it practical reason. He deliberately invented a variety of reasons for use on occasions when it was not desirable, or when it was desirable not to trouble with reason. That is, when morality, when the sublime command, Thou shalt, was heard. When one recalls the fact that, among all peoples, the philosopher is no more than a development from the old type of priest, this inheritance from the priest, this fraud upon self, ceases to be remarkable. When a man feels that he has a divine mission, say, to lift up, to save, or to liberate mankind, when a man feels the divine spark in his heart and believes that he is the mouthpiece of a, superior, of a supernatural imperatives, when such a mission inflames him, it is only natural that he should stand beyond all merely reasonable standards of judgment. He feels that he is himself sanctified by this mission, that he is himself a type of a higher order. What has a priest to do with philosophy? He stands far above it, and hitherto the priest has ruled. He has determined the meaning of true and not true. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And I will suggest to you that Nietzsche is speaking of the true priestcraft of this world those elect within the secret society groups, the secret schools, they are the priestcraft. And he says that the philosopher today inherited this from 
times past from the priest class. And it's their place to do this. Let's read on. Let us not underestimate this fact that we ourselves, we free spirits, are already a transvaluation of all values, a visualized declaration of war and victory against all the old concepts of true and not true. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, ourselves, our, all of these things that he's writing in here, they're all italicized in order to make the designation to those who know. He's speaking of this very small group of people, the secret society groups, the adepts within the secret societies. Let me begin that again, and I'll try to emphasize the words. Let us not underestimate this fact that we ourselves, we free spirits, are already a transvaluation of all values, a visualized declaration of war and victory against all the old concepts of true and not true. The most valuable intuitions are the last to be obtained. The most valuable of all are those which determine methods. All the methods... All the principles of scientific spirit of today were the targets for thousands of years of the most profound contempt. If a man inclined to them, he was excluded from the society of decent people. He passed as an enemy of a god, as a scoffer at the truth, as one possessed. As a man of science, he belonged to the Chandala. We have had the whole pathetic stupidity of mankind against us. Their every notion of what the truth ought to be, of what the service of the truth ought to be, their every thou shalt was launched against us. Our objectives, our methods, our quiet, cautious, distrustful manner, all appeared to them as absolutely discreditable and contemptible. Looking back, one may almost ask oneself with reason if it was not actually an aesthetic sense that kept men blind so long. What they demanded of the truth was picturesque effectiveness, and of the learned a strong appeal to their senses. It was our modesty that stood out longest against their taste. How well they guessed that these turkey cocks of God. Gonna pause right there, folks. So you see this attitude he has against the people. And of course, he's speaking to those who know. He sees himself as being so beyond the average person. And he sees his fellow beings within the secret society groups here as being superior in many ways to the masses. And they have this contempt for the unwashed masses, the profane. I'm going to continue on. This is the last portion I want to read here. We have unlearned something. We have become more modest in every way. We no longer derive man from the spirit, from the Godhead. We have dropped him back among the beasts. We regard him as the strongest of the beasts because he is the craftiest. 
One of the results thereof is his intellectuality. On the other hand, we guard ourselves against a conceit which would assert itself even here. That man is the great second thought in the process of organic evolution. He is, in truth, anything but the crown of creation. Beside him stand many other animals, all at similar stages of development. And even when we say that, we say a bit too much, for man, relatively speaking, is the most botched of all the animals, and the sickliest. And he has wandered the most dangerously from his instincts, though for all that, to be sure, he remains the most interesting. As regards the lower animals, it was Descartes, who first had the really admirable daring to describe them as machina. The whole of our physiology is directed toward proving the truth of this doctrine. Moreover, it is illogical to set man apart, as Descartes did. When we know of man today is limited precisely by the extent to which we have regarded him, too, as a machine. Formerly, we accord to man as his inheritance from some higher order of beings what was called free will. Now we have taken even this will from him, from, for the term no longer describes anything that we can understand. The old word will now connotes only a sort of result, an individual reaction that follows inevitably upon a series of partly discordant and partly harmonious stimuli. The will no longer acts or moves. Formerly, it was thought that man's consciousness, his spirit, offered evidence of his high origin, his divinity. That he might be perfected, he was advised, tortoise-like, to draw his senses in, to have no traffic with earthly things, to shuffle off his mortal coil. Then only the important part of him, the pure spirit, would remain. Here again we have thought out the thing better. To us, consciousness, or the spirit, appears as a symptom of a relative imperfection of the organism, as an experiment, a groping, a misunderstanding, as an affliction which uses up nervous force unnecessarily. We deny that anything can be done perfectly so long as it is done consciously. The pure spirit is a piece of pure stupidity. Take away the nervous system and the senses, the so-called mortal shell, and the rest is miscalculation. That is all. And we're going to stop right there, folks. So here lies the foundation of the modern transhumanist movement. You see, many within these secret schools... And throughout academia, they espouse this idea that everything, everything is just a manifestation of some material, physical world thing here. That your consciousness is nothing but the byproduct of the electrophysical, electrochemical activity of the brain and brainstem. That's what Nietzsche is asserting here. That's what many of these people in the high echelons of power in society, believe. And that's why they seek the transhumanist notion of things to achieve immortality by merging with machines. They think they could really transfer their consciousness to a machine and live forever in the physical material world here sense of things. There's many in the mid-level 
orders of the power structure that believe this and work towards this. But at the highest, most levels, these dark occultists at the top of the power structure, they know this is a lie born in the pits of hell. They know that the human being has a soul. They know that this soul has more power than what they would like us to have. And they know that seeking spiritual things first, first and foremost, above all others, is what will lead to the downfall of their plans here. They don't want us to think that. They want us to believe that we're nothing more but the byproduct of some physical, chemical activity here. That our consciousness is nothing more than an accident. It's a miscalculation, as Nietzsche described it. That there's really no such thing. You see, this is what they teach and what they espouse. And these are the ideas that have taken hold in academia, in the university system, in the school system. So as you can see, Nietzsche and all of academia has declared a war against Christianity. So that being said, folks, that's all I've got for tonight. We'll catch you next time. I appreciate each and every one of you. Have a good night now. Come with me.